Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Good to be back. It is indeed. We're talking reporting season, really in the thick of it now. We've got the the meat in the middle section of reporting season. So we're going to cover well, five, maybe 10 companies today. Um, some of the companies include Altium. I might throw in a few small caps. Drew's going to cover Borrell, Kogan, Hub, Coles, <laughs> Endeavor. A good list there. I know a lot of uh, there's a lot of interest in Endeavor because of the demerger. I was in the news recently. I don't know much about it other than I sometimes go there to buy wine. And pubs. And pubs. There you go. Yep. Um, we might also talk about net wealth, seeing that we've got the hub connection in there. Cochlear came out with some decent results. EML is a bit of a basket case, uh, which I'll cover in just a few moments. And uh, we'll just get cracking into it, I guess. So, mate, um, I can't remember who went first last time. Maybe... You go first. Put me in, yeah, put yeah, me into it. That's good. <laughs> what do you think of when you think of Borrell? Me, I think cement, but I don't <laughs> think anyone else thinks that. <laughs> yeah, we, we're kind of proud. We when we build direct equity portfolios for our clients, we're proud how boring our portfolio of stocks is. Yeah, right. You literally know what every company does, and you can. They're easy to forecast. They're easy, easy to understand. I mean, Borrell is construction materials and essentially concrete. They own quarries. They had a whole heap of overseas businesses for quite a while. They've sold those off at various times, went from you know expanding into everything to going back to their core, pretty common in uh, listed mm. markets, unfortunately. It is. Um, and I mean, the result was pretty mixed. They initially fell by something like 12 or 13% when Adelaide Brighton, who yeah, people would have heard Adelaide. of the same group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pronto Cement, I think, is one of their brands. Um, they initially fell by more than 10% or about 10%, I think, when Adelaide Brighton reported, but uh, actually rallied when they reported their own result. The The issue, I think, was revenue was up only 1%, and that was despite massive demand for you know, renovations, freeways, every, everywhere you go at the moment, there's roadworks and yeah, cement goes into all those. <laughs> but the they were hit, whilst that was strong, they were hit by rainfall. So New South Wales and Queensland had a whole heap of shutdowns across construction industry, um, when I think the La Nina weather patterns hit mm-hmm. uh, and construction lockdowns, as we know, 
we try to forget about the lockdowns that happened over the last two years. Especially here in Vic. Yeah, but that hit them in the in the financial year. So the result was earnings fell 19%. Their statutory profit was $960 million, but underlying was only $107 million. And it's really this big shift. So for, for context, Seven Group, I think it's Seven Group, uh, bought, they, they now own something like, I think it's 80% of the company, but didn't do a formal takeover. And they're listed on the ASX. So they've gone through this simplification, almost just becoming a cash-producing returning money to shareholder business. So wait, so Seven Group owned how much of? 70 to 80%, I think. Yeah, right. Okay. So they crept up the share register, started buying more, didn't lodge a formal offer. And essentially, it's a listed company that has a small free float, which isn't that uncommon overseas, but it's a little bit less common here. Mm. So you're effectively investing alongside Stokes, Family, and and that group. Right. Um, I'm just, well, thankfully, they do own it and they've saved, saved shareholders some of the misery so, it, because since two thousand and what's this? The year two thousand, it was two dollars and seven cents. It's now three dollars. Twenty-two years later, um, has it paid a lot of dividends in that time? I did have a massive. So this is a part of the problem with being ASX. Liz, we were talking about this during the week in the office. Was that you're always see it searching for growth, and shareholders always want more growth. So you go out and acquire a lot of different businesses, mm. uh, and at various times it turns out well and doesn't. And they're at a point where they did that. It went went well for a while and the share price was quite high and then realized how hard it was to run multiple businesses and now they're kind of in the reverse phase. So they had a massive capital return uh, earlier this year. That's where the share price dropped by, I think it was about 30 to 35%. Yeah. They basically, they sold US businesses and joint ventures uh, to clean up and focus on cement and infrastructure. So that was the, the big one and the dividend's fairly consistent. Yeah, during... Uh- during like the GFC era, the 2000s and what, uh, 2007, 2008, they were paying 34 cents per share yeah. in dividends. So had your original cost base been, you know, two bucks, um, it's pretty hefty capital return over the years. And I assume a lot of franking credits along the way. Yeah, definitely. So you've paid it back in dividends a few times over by the looks of it. That's just the share prices language. Like you said, a few changes here and there, a couple of big shark tooths along the way. Goes up, <laughs> goes down. <laughs> And it's uh, one of those companies that I think it's exposed to a good theme that's occurring everywhere in the world. And that's, you know, rebuilding infrastructure, building new bridges, investing in kind of finding productivity. Um, and we've seen a part of that in the housing sector over the last five or 10 years as well. Yeah, absolutely. We have. Um, okay. So, Borrell, if you're going to give it a score, say like A plus through to fail, what would it? Uh, from the share price reaction, it's probably a fail. Yeah. Um, but- in context, the CEO is leaving, shareholder owns 80%, uh, or main shareholder owns 70%, sorry. So probably a slight pass yeah, right. if you know it's a reset. And the underlying parts of the business actually look pretty good. They're talking about work they've got coming with West Sydney Airport, Sydney Metro, Sydney Metro West, uh, and a whole heap of projects, infrastructure, infrastructure projects that have taken a while to come to fruition. So, hmm. Okay, cool. Well, from one... Um, to another, EML Payments is the uh, quote-unquote fintech enabler, is what people call it. And they, as I mentioned last night on SelfWealth, uh, it's pretty much what everyone, that's the moniker that everyone gives to it, fintech enabler, when they don't know exactly what it does. <laughs> so, it's not prepaid cards, is it? Yeah, it does prepaid cards. Yeah. yeah, it does that, plus a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Um, makes money through breakage, like if you have a gift card that expires worthless through clipping the ticket, um, does a lot of like welfare type stuff. For example, if you need to get stimulus out, 
and you can credit people really quickly through these uh, virtual accounts that they put together. It's a roll-up of companies because it's bought a few different companies over the years. This is like on Twitter right now, in the Twitterati, this is the number one meme stock. <laughs> so, But for the wrong reasons. It's not going up, it's going down. And um, that's profit and cash uh, flow. It's got cash flow. <laughs> um, profit, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a very complex business. So they've accounts that in the in Europe, in the UK, elsewhere, they've got accounts to account payments. Here in Australia, they've got reloadable gift cards. They're the market leader for fringe benefits. So if you're if someone that's in healthcare, a partner is in healthcare that does this, or maybe you're in healthcare, you've experienced this. Um, does a lot of the like the the malls. So if you need a you know like a Westfield card, for example, that might be used at the stores. Uh, you might you, like any of the stores. You would use this. Uh, and fintechs use it because they take away the complexity of developing your own payments ecosystem, basically. Uh, but one of the things that's happened is they've made a few acquisitions over the years, particularly in Europe, that have come back to bite them. Um, in terms of, so the, the ways you can monitor the company include gross, gross deposit volume or GDV, so the amount of money going into the EML ecosystem. That was up 308% to $80 billion. But the big reason for that was an acquisition of Centennial. Uh, in Europe, which I'll get to in a minute. Revenue was up 21% to $234 million. Profit, aka loss, was negative $4.8 million. That's up from a loss of $29 million the year before. Uh, gross profit went up, but so did expenses. That's a 500% improvement. Well, depends. Can you multiply negative numbers? <laughs> um, so uh, the outlook is pretty binary. And the reason that I say that is the CEO left, you might have seen this in the news, the CEO left, Tom Cregan interviewed him on the podcast here, on the Australian Investors Podcast, and uh, he left with like one business day's notice, and he'd been there since 2012. Yeah. Um, he was replaced by Emma Shand, who I think is still in Australia, but maybe based over in Europe for a little while, while they deal with a bunch of regulatory issues with the Central Bank of Ireland. And now more recently, so there was the, the, the earnings call, um, and then, which was great, actually, it was the first time we heard from Emma. She's conducting a thorough review of the company and it will be presented to shareholders um, in November. She's a pretty well-credentialed executive. Um, so that all happened. That took place with Rob Shaw, CFO, on the call a week or so ago. But then what happened is this week the company came out and went into a trading halt and titled the announcement something like, Centennial fraud incident. Exactly right. I've got it open. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened is, and I'll quote, EML is taking steps to investigate and understand the circumstances surrounding the fraud and has commenced steps to recover any losses. EML is confident that the maximum amount of any losses will not exceed 6.5 million, uh, sorry, 5.5 million euros, but maybe lower depending on the success of recovery actions. So this has come after the Central Bank of Ireland has clamped down on them and um, force them through this remediation program and this like compliance program, um, which has been a huge headache for EML. Uh, and then this is with another business that they acquired. So two acquisitions now in Europe that have come under scrutiny and this couldn't come at a worse time. I put out a tweet, like you've always got to be careful when you put out a tweet, but this one in particular, I said, um, have we reached the point of maximum pessimism for EML? 
And then this announcement came out a day later. It's up 2% today, so well, maybe we have. Well, there you go. I mean, what's prop- it down from, like $6? Uh, I can see four in the last 12 months, so down 75 80%. I mean, it probably got similarities to borrow, uh, to be boring, which is you know acquiring, having multiple business- businesses in multiple com- countries. And Borrell had, a, I think, a fraud incident in their Windows business where the financials of that business didn't stack up. So it's hard to be in control of every business um, yeah. that you're managing. Yeah, it can be. Um, absolutely. Particularly in these larger businesses. Like we expect that CEOs know everything about everything. But at the same time, um, just a really complex business to model. And every time I do a discounted cash flow over this business, I think to myself, it looks pretty good. It looks pretty good. It looks pretty, and I just keep following it down. Yeah. Um, like the the running joke on Twitter at the moment is, "Here's how I invested in EML over the last five years," and then it's just blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, growth kind of hid that, didn't it? Since the pandemic, like yeah. revenue growth, cash flow, everything was growing. Particularly if they were helping fintech, so all these issues are kind of hidden in light of a massive top line revenue growth. Yeah, one of the things that. Um, one of the things, and this is this would be really hard to do your your DD on, if you're acquiring, is when they acquired the prepaid financial services business. This is a business that they acquired in the UK a few years ago, uh, just before COVID. It was announced that because of Brexit, they had to relocate that business basically. So that business relocated to Ireland, which has a different set of like regulatory standards. And so when they relocated, that's when all the issues arose yeah. with like compliance and anti-money laundering and all that. And this other one, which is uh, Centennial, which has the um, new pay brand on it, and that's account to account payments, kind of like our OSCO or Beamit or whatever here in Australia. And um, the problem is that wherever there is like instant money transfers, particularly through geographies, you're going to attract money laundering. There's no question. Yeah. So whoever's like the next in line for launching an app, be warned that you are going to get people try and use your platform for money laundering. And that's where EMLs become a bit unstuck now. So overall, I've rambled long enough, but I know it's one that people want me to cover. I mean, it's it's a binary outcome from here for me. I think, you know, I said t- three days ago, is it maximum pessimism? Well, maybe it could get worse from here. Um, but I would say that, you know, it's... It's one where you have to tread carefully, be exp- like just prepare for a lot of volatility. Um, a couple of companies have looked at it for acquisition and have walked away. We don't know why. There's been very little shed on that, very little light shed on that. So for me, very, very high risk. I mean, that's probably where I'd leave it. That's probably one of the reasons. So when we build portfolios and if we're investing in something like this, it'd be part of a fund or a manager who's got the ability to attend every call go to Ireland, have a look at what their yeah. businesses are doing. Because if you're doing it yourself, yeah, you could probably do it for 10 companies and, and yeah. have a good idea. But it's very hard to invest direct and and know this is coming. Yeah. Um, I mean, and still like some of the best fund managers I'd say in Australia have still held on to this or had it. Not some of the best, but many of like the tech-oriented fund managers have allocated to EML. Yeah. Um, and the CEO, former CEO, Tom Cregan, you know, spoke very well and had pretty good vision for the business and had done pretty well up until the two acquisitions. So, um, yeah, one one for the watch list. And um, if you're on Twitter, you can enjoy it. Uh, that's number one for me, mate. What's number two for you? Uh, probably been pretty negative on this company for a while, which is oh. 
probably because I missed out and didn't buy it a dollar when it went up to 13, but Kogan. Oh, yeah. Um, we were talking, I think we talked about this a few times. Uh, I, it's always seemed to be a challenging business. I bought a few things there. Uh, everyone that kind of knows what Kogan does, you call them the Amazon of Australia. Australia. Maybe that's a, that's a pretty big compliment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But you don't, this one stood out because you don't often get an apology from management that says, you know, we got something wrong. Mm. Um, I was trying to find exactly what they said. It wasn't a, there was no sorry there. So it wasn't an apology that actually had sorry in it. Uh, we were wrong, is what you got. Um, so essentially, I mean, if Target in the US, one of the biggest retailers in the world, can do it, you can't really blame Kogan. But essentially, they said, we saw this massive growth in demand and online sales for all of our various products, whether that was, you know, uh, electronics to other random things. And as a result, they spent a massive amount of money on inventory because mm -hmm. they thought that demand was going to continue. Turns out when people were locked at home, they shop more than they, they would. So I, I had a quick look at the financials. It went from 112 million in inventory in 20 to 227 in 21 to 159 in 22. So, so it went up like 100 and back 50. Doubled, yeah. And I think the challenge there though, and this is what you saw with Target and the same problem with them, is that when you've got too much inventory, you have to sell it. The only way to sell it is to cut the price even more. And if you're already a low-cost seller, your, your margin just disappears. Mm. Um, so they, I think they went from a slight profit to a loss of $35 million and they kind of got savaged and they've been savaged over a period of time by the market. And shares um, are down from a high of $24.75 to $3.59 at the time of recording. I only looked back 12 months where it was 13. So this is one of those stories where, you know, even a company that's fallen 70% can fall another 70%. Yeah. Um, I naturally want to buy companies after they've fallen. Yeah, you anchor to the price, I've, right? I've told you that before yeah. and I forcibly stop myself from doing that now. It almost um, be better off like flipping that on its head. Find the companies that have gone up and just buy those ones. That's what I do now. Momentum. <laughs> yeah. It tends to work better. But everything else was like it actually is a growing company compared to everything else. So, you know, gross sales in their marketplace business were up 20%. Yeah, gross profit was down. Revenue was down for the for the main business. Um, and uh, I think we talked maybe it was a year ago or when we were in lockdown about how they had gone into so many different verticals, which is always – it seems the commonality in the last three has been – you know, they started doing energy, they started doing phones, they started doing- Super. Super. And that just seems losing direction and not focusing on what they're best at. Probably all right for Amazon to do that, but mm. maybe not Kogan. I remember when I bought a Kogan phone, it, <laughs> I thought it was cheap, saw my Android days. Um, <laughs> Android days sound like someone that's like talking of like a dark period in their life. <laughs> um, and- uh, I, I got the, bo the, the box for the phone. I pulled it out. It was from Hong Kong. It didn't come with an Australian charger. It all came, everything came from Hong Kong or the, China. The every whole time thing. From yeah. Kogan. And I was like, oh, damn it, now you need to go find one of these chargers. I didn't even realize. Um, but for the most part, like I've had Kogan TVs, they've been pretty good. You know? Get most of it's fine. Yeah. yeah, I got Kogan home. I, I, we did see kind of issues where a couple of people in the office were trying to buy things in 21. Yeah, right. And they weren't arriving or they were delayed yeah, a long a time. Stuff, and yeah. anecdotally, you start to get worried, but the share price was still going up. So, yeah. What's, what's interesting, because I looked at the financials as well, is that, um, yeah, their profit went backwards in a big way, but their cash flow actually went forward in a massive way. It was a $120 million turnaround in yeah. two years. Because you're yeah. unwinding. It's, it's, and I think it went from, from, forgive me off the top of my head, but the- um, the working capital position went from negative sixty million to positive sixty million yeah. in twelve months. Yeah. So the cash, the free cash flow, looks like it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
But you'd only probably know that if you dig into the notes and you look at, like, you understand why working capital works. It probably should have been 120 million if they were selling all the product at full price. Yeah. 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 And the thing is, they're going to have to shift back to a normal state of inventory. That marketplace thing actually dug a bit deeper into that too, which is interesting. Um, I think the big push behind that Kogan marketplace is that they bring sellers onto the platform who can basically manage their own inventory. Yeah. So you can sell on there and they can base and they'll integrate with like um, Shopify or Magento or whatever, you know, software you're using. And then that way you can sell on there and then they don't necessarily have to take as much of the risk. Yeah. Which makes sense. And just take a cut. Yeah, just take yeah. a cut from accessing the audience basically. So yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um they've got a lot more um Kogan first users and they've got an ambition to get to one million users. They actually just recently increased their price of Kogan first. To seventy nine ninety nine, I think it was, and they said it's because of costs and whatever, which you can understand. So it'd be interesting to see the pricing power there if people stick with it, even as a price increase. They had something like eighty four percent renewal for the first cohort. Yeah, it's pretty high. I mean, yeah. they're the true fans, the first people to rock up to a free buffet are the ones who are hungry, right? So they'll 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 renew first. Uh, but at the same time, if they can maintain that preference in buyer behaviour, then it's it's interesting. It was interesting they said they suspended their delivery service as well because it was they? getting too hard to do. Essentially, you you know you cost trucks, you can't find yeah, drivers, right. and that was becoming a potential hit to profit as well. So, so they just outsourced third parties and whatever. That's probably why the price has gone up. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Interesting. So, Kogan, um, Roslyn Kogan, founder. Uh, okay, cool. I like that. So, n- numero two from me, um, I'll go with Altium. Altium makes the software... So I just want to be clear, makes the software for printed circuit board design. So if you've got any type of electrical component, I can see a lot here in front of me. Uh, they all need like a, if you think of that green thing that you pull out of a computer, which is normally the motherboard, think of that, but smaller, uh, like it's got little transistors and whatever on it. Uh, you can use Altium software to design that. And it's increasingly being used by large teams. They've got a Nexus product, which is basically their core designer software for teams and it's all cloud-based the new versions of it and they've shifted to um, a subscription which that transition often hurts because companies go from selling once-off software for a high fee to selling ongoing software for a lower fee but better margin it's better for the software developers that create the software though because if you do an update within the software it updates across the entire customer uh, profile instantly rather than if you have to send someone a disk or they install a new version or whatever so uh, for the most part ltm's result was super strong uh revenue up 23 percent to 221 million dollars uh beat my estimates profit 55 million dollars up 57 percent huge operating leverage kicking in um dividends for the full year of 47 cents up 18 percent the outlook i would say is very positive because they're guiding for 15 to 20 percent top line growth the thing that's um, just is the way I think about Altium is inside of Altium, there's a division called Octopart. And Octopart, um, it's, it's a search engine for components for PCB. So if you have like those tiny little transistors, you can go into Octopart and search for that component that you need. So if you're designing with Altium products, you're designing this new piece of electrical equipment, you can automatically go and find the product that you need. And then you can search the marketplace for that component. And it'll instantly give you prices from one to a million. So how many do you need, basically? And um, the the reason why this is interesting is because it's like a traditional search engine. 
but you can use that as almost like a a, a yardstick or a leading indicator for how the the business is going because if you if you know that's getting a lot of attention and they're making a lot of revenue from that division it basically says there's a lot of activity going on inside the ecosystem yeah and so that's a sign that things are coming back and that was that grew really fast so um all in all really positive results from Altium I like it I still think maybe they could have taken up the offer from Autodesk at $38 a share. I don't know what it is right now, but- um, Is that still, well, they said no, pretty hard no, didn't they? Yeah, $37.55, and that's after a big jump earlier this week. So um, yeah, I think my valuation is just over, sorry, about $31, $32. So um, it's always, it's one of those businesses that it's a, Charlie Munger would say is, you know, or Buffett would say, you know, it's a wonderful business at a fair price. You'd rather that than a fair business at a wonderful price. So um, LTM is riding that vertical of Internet of Things. Semiconductors. Semiconductors, um, connected manufacturing where you can design and manufacture and get go like think of gigafactories and all that. And there's another one that was, you know, got caught in the tech sell-off. So what went from 45 to 25 yeah. in 2022 alone. And now it's, even yeah. though it's bigger, it's growing faster yeah. and it's actually selling things. So it's yeah, always- so it's a good business. Uh, $5 billion. Key competitors are uh, Siemens, which owns Mentor Graphics, and Cadence Systems. CDNS is the ticker symbol on the NASDAQ. Um, there are a couple of others around the outside like Zucan, but uh, they specialize in different things. So that's Altium, ALU on the ASX is the ticker code. That's my number two. What do you got for number three, Matt? Uh, so this is one we use in the in Waddle quite a bit, which is Hub24. So they're an in- investment platform. Um, as in you use them for clients? Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. And I actually have my own superannuation held with Hub as well. Um, not a recommendation. Not a recommendation. <laughs> um, essentially, it's an administration platform. So if you've got an SMSF, for instance, you can hold managed funds, overseas shares, uh, direct stocks, and all the tax reporting will be done for you. You can implement it all through the same portal. It comes at a cost. So essentially, they make, they make money out of charging you for that platform and all the reporting that comes with it. And then like any financial services company, they like computer share, they take they they actually they they have an arbitrage between what the interest they get on your cash account and the uh interest they pay to you as well so they can make a clip of that ticket a margin essentially so they might be paid 1.5 and they pay you one yeah um so it's regularly voted the number one platform so you've got the big groups like panorama um AMP North and these sort of groups. And then you've got these fintechs you're talking about, NetWealth, the early yeah. fintechs in Australia, NetWealth, Hub24, Premium, um, and these groups that are quickly quickly kind of uh, attracting advisors who want more flexibility. So half the advisory industry's disappeared. Most of them used to be aligned to the major platforms and people want flexibility and want yeah. the ability to you know run efficient businesses and deliver advice quickly and um, cost effectively to clients as well. So that's what they're benefiting from. Their assets under management were had record inflows, so $11 billion more on the platform. The number of advisors using the platform increased to by 14%, so that's 3,400 of 17,000 in total. Um, their market share grew. It's only small, so 3.9% to 5.1 market share, but that's pretty big market share jump, and it's in a $60 billion under administration, not under management, sorry. Um, and it's one of these businesses like any tech company, once it gets scale, it goes straight to profit. Mm-hmm. So you spend a lot of money setting it up, getting the tech right, uh, and that's why profit was up 130%, $35 million in profit, uh, and revenue, platform revenue is up 59% to $160 million, and they, they doubled the dividend at the same time. 
they also bought this year class. If you've heard of class yeah. before, you might have had the CEO on. No, nah, they do the yeah. back end reporting for SMSFs, right? Yeah, and this is it's kind of like a a turf war for data. Essentially, the better mm. data you get, the better providers you get, the more assist, the more things you can add to make it life easier for clients and and advisors. The more valuable you become. So. It's been a super interesting one. It's I've always struggled to buy the stock because it's always <laughs> traded on a PE, yep. a high PE. Um, but I think it was a pretty quality report. Um, what? What? Okay, so you're a financial advisor. You you deal with clients. What made you choose Hub over NetWealth? Flexibility. Uh, so one of the challenges you have with platforms is they don't allow every investment you might want to use on there. Hub Twenty Four was among the most flexible. They also allow global equities. Um, which was something we will be able to directly buy Amazon or Apple or or ARK ETF, probably not the best example, but <laughs> buy overseas ETFs at the yep. same time. So it was that sort of flexibility and the and the kind of things we we're looking for at the time. So we reviewed everyone. Pricing's all pretty similar across most platforms because it's no you know clear, transparent market. Uh, so it was more the flexibility and the engagement and the ability to request things and have upgrades made. Right. So let's just have a quick look across the two NetWealth and Hub here. Hub's got 3,486 advisors. This is a reporting date. NetWealth says its financial intermediaries is 3,328, uh, 27, sorry. So it's about, what, like 150 behind. Yeah. Um, you said the, so what was the, uh, Funds under administration on Hub? Yeah, so the Hub and NetWealth would never manage funds. The advisors manage them, so they usually call it funds under administration, and that was $65 billion. Yeah, right. Okay, with uh, NetWealth, it was 55.6. So do those numbers from Hub include class? Uh, no, they include the mailing house service, which is a different kind of, basically, they take your mail. Okay, right. <laughs> Ordmanet, I think, used to run that. Uh, and that's fifteen billion is included in that, so otherwise it'd be about fifty. Yeah, right. Okay. So, just based on these numbers right here, it looks like you could maybe say Hub's just a little bit bigger, uh, just a tiny bit bigger. So total income from net wealth was one hundred seventy-three million, Hub one hundred ninety-two million, but net wealth's more profitable at the bottom line, underlying NPAT of fifty-six million versus underlying EDPAT for Hub at thirty-six million. So. Um, yeah, I mean, is this an in, is this an industry where you could just invest in both of them? I think so. And it, interestingly, if you think something like computers, computer shares are an inflation hedge. This kind of plays as an inflation hedge as well. They make comments about you know extracting profit as higher rates go up, that they can actually generate more income as well. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to. You don't always have to pick the winner. I think multiple winners can be here, and that's probably evidenced by. There was a research report that came out that interviewed financial advisors, and on average, each financial advisor has three platforms they use, hmm. not just one. Um, so, yeah, there's going to be more than one winner, likely. Yeah, right. So, NetWealth and Hub 24, NWL for NetWealth on the ASX, HUB for Hub. NetWealth results were similarly strong. Um, there was a transition, so they've always had this co-managing director or co-CEO situation. Father and son duo, uh, founding family. Um, now the son's just taken over. Yeah. It's been there since 2001. So, um, yeah, I think for the most part, well-managed, aligned management team. They're going to favor dividends because they get dividends. Yeah. <laughs> so. we, we've, uh, I think we did some work with them back in 2005 or so. They're Heinies. They were yeah, right. founded this company from nothing, essentially, and 
mm. and built it into you know fifty five billion. Yeah, um, it's just a beast now. Yeah, should have invested back then. <laughs> Thanks. I think I think we got offered to. <laughs> oh no! So it's three point four billion dollars now. The company. Um, okay, so that's uh, that's a good one. Hub. Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty good result. Same with uh, Netwealth. Why don't I go with, um, say, let's say Treasury Wines. Everyone loves red wine. <laughs> so um, Treasury Wines uh, is the owner of the Penfolds brands, uh, Squealing Pig, uh, and a bunch of other different premium wines now. they've Over the last few years, two major things have happened. The first one is China's tariffs, because of the trade war, just slammed shut the door on Treasury Wines' growth in mainland China. So... That was it's a, like Treasury Wines. That was the number one growth engine, and so now they had to pivot. They've looked at North America, and what they were also trying to do is they've split out Penfolds into a separate division, and they've made a few acquisitions to complement the premium end of the wine range. So, no longer do they they've they've sold off. This is the other thing they've sold off their what they call commercial wines, which are like their mass market, kind of middle of the range, um, everyone can drink it type thing. Uh, and now they're just focusing on premium wine. So they brought Frank, uh, Frank Valley um, uh, States in the US. Uh, they made another little purchase recently in Bordeaux. And they've got these three divisions. Things with uh, Treasury Wines is they have a little bit of uh, accounting difference. So to most companies, industrial companies that you come across, they report things like EBITs with an S on the end. Cigara? Yes, Cigara. Yeah, sounds like cigar, but it's not spelt that way. It's S-G-A-R-A. Which is basically um, just a that they basically adjust for the value revaluation of like plants and aging of vineyards and that type of stuff. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that they 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 comment on is this thing called NSR, which is I think it's net selling revenue, and then they do that same thing for case. So you know, a case of wine or whatever to give you a sense of, I guess, the mix of the, the products that they're selling. So the total net selling revenue. For the the business actually went backwards nine point three. So in Penfolds went back nine point three percent. In their Treasury Americas business was flat, and in their Treasury Premium brands was also negative. In Penfolds, if you excluded China, it was up forty three uh, forty five percent. Now the interesting thing um, for the whole business is the um, the net selling revenue per case was up 16% to $97. And this is the whole focus. Okay, we're getting rid of that commercial brand. Now we're going to focus on premium brands, which attract a higher price and, and should result in better economics for the business. Profit was up 5%. Um, so 83% of their sa- sales now are premium brands. And over the next little while, they've, they're have they doing this cost out program, this cost efficiency program. They originally thought it was going to result in $75 million over the next few years of cost outs. It's now $90 million, I think, off the top of my head. I don't have the numbers right in front of me. Um, pays a dividend, expects margin expansion from the shift in the mix to higher priced products, but also cost outs. So I think for the most part, it was a good result from Treasury. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those businesses which has for it's gone through some trials and tribulations, but for the very long term, it's actually been a pretty good, pretty compelling business. Uh, performed pretty well in terms of share price, but also in terms of dividends to shareholders. So it's a challenging one, isn't it, when China just decides essentially closes their door to yeah. all of your wine, and it you know you you kind of hope management would maintain more diversification of revenue. But when the market's so big and so profitable, you don't blame, yeah, you don't them, blame them. Yeah, in a listed market environment to get as much growth as they can. Uh, so I think 
yeah, I mean, it looks like it's doing reasonably well and they've pivoted. Uh, obviously, difficult to have foresight and how bad relations would get. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the geopolitical issues, like if you look at, say, look at um, Altium, right? Altium has a Chinese business. There was a lot of ripoffs of its software in China, but it's still growing in yeah. Asia. And um, I think it just depends what type of thing you're selling, right? Yeah. So if you're selling wine and you're in a trade war, um, they can just say no thanks and go get it somewhere else. But if you're selling software like mission critical software, that's probably the best in the world. Or iron ore. Or iron ore. They're like, <laughs> oh, don't, don't, don't think about that right now. <laughs> we need that. Uh, so, yeah, for the for the most part, Treasury runs pretty compelling. I'd have it on my watch list right now, to be honest. Um, yeah, get a dividend, long-term growth. If you drink Penfolds, I don't. But if you do, there's an added benefit. I don't you know always, if there's any yeah. discount. And you always see quick re-ratings when you know the risks kind of disappear and progress is being made. So yeah. it'll be on the nose incredibly badly for a while. And then once it turns, it turns incredibly quickly. Absolutely. So that's my number three. What's your number four? Stick. We'll stick with liquor. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, not as good, much good liquor, theme. but <laughs> it's nearly Friday. 2,400 <laughs> companies on the ASX and this is what we come up with. The market's up again. <laughs> uh, coal, so boring, boring, but this is just reflective of the way we build portfolios. Coles isn't announced, but you know everyone knows supermarkets and, and mm -hmm. liquor retailing. Uh, company got smashed a bit. I think it was down about 8 9% on the day. Uh, essentially, they, we, we, they all management of Coles and Woolworths uh, highlighted this during the pandemic that when and they came out, sales growth wasn't going to hit the levels that it was because people weren't cooking at home anymore. So revenue growth was only two percent, and they referred to cycling. So not you know in your lycra, but yep. um, you're cycling out twelve percent growth on the. On I the think other about side. what you meant there. Yeah, like. I'm trying to be funny. Yeah. <laughs> Profit, uh, I mean, EBIT was flat. That's why the market didn't like it. Dividend mm -hmm. only went up 3%. Comparable sales growth was only 3% higher. So that's the if you only had the same amount of stores. Mm -hmm. um, how these companies used, used to make money was open more stores, but eventually you get completely saturated. Um, and then they start to open you know, city stores or express stores yeah. and, and trial different things. Um, they interesting. I always find interesting when you change the way you're reporting and you're comparable. So, <laughs> like in funds management, you see this switch from when markets are bad, stressing long-term returns rather than short-term, and the table changes the opposite way from five years <laughs> to to one month. Yeah, of course, and they've done it by referring to the three-year yep. compound growth of sales mm -hmm. rather than just the last twelve months. And three-year looks great, twelve and eighteen percent in supermarket and liquor sales. But it was only 2% in the last 12 months. So, um, mm. I mean, I didn't think it was too bad a report. It's a you know pretty stable company, you know, e-commerce sales. It's whether they can extract the you know the same level of growth and profit that they have in the past, and it's highly competitive. We still prefer uh, Woolworths um, if you're going to buy the two. There's probably another one where you could hold both if you wanted to. Uh, and I always judge it on my local stores. If you walk into either one, does one feel tired or mm. not? Because uh, we know that's our Woolworths lost for quite a few years, and how Coles has struggled more recently as well. So, um, and my local Woolies is better than my local Coles. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. So I was surprised at how much bigger Woolworths is in terms of market share in Australia. Yeah, there are a few studies online that show you how much bigger it is. But I was just, I always thought they were very like much neck and neck. It was like thirty-seven cents in the dollar. Every dollar go to Woolies. Yeah, something like that. And yeah. like. In the high twenties, maybe for Coles and Aldi was much smaller than you'd think. I think it was about eight or ten. Yeah, and took them ten years yeah, or twelve right. years to get there. So okay, so overall, you think it was a 
decent result, although... I think so. The share price, obviously, no one really liked uh, the result because the share price fell 4.5% on the day. Um, they're clearly worried about inflation. It could be more about outlook and comments from management, cost of lettuce, the, you know... <laughs> mm, yeah, very important uh, stuff. How are you passing on that? Uh, and they've got all these strategies like they call it smart selling where they're trying different things, same trends across the country. Um, so I don't think it was too bad. I mean, the interesting parts there, um, Ocado business, which is where you're trying to automate the, the, oh, the picking and packing. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. I was wondering what that was. Okay. Because I do see it mentioned a bit. And they're going to spend a billion, a one, two to 1.4 billion on CapEx, which is refurbing stores or building these in Melbourne and Sydney to, mm. to try and you know expedite delivery. Mm. Um, I've heard now some calls have like a full conveyor belt where it automatically scans your yeah. uh, your groceries. Uh, so I mean, yeah, it will be interesting to see what they do with that one billion dollars. It's a lot of it's a lot of cash to throw at Australian supermarkets, particularly in a time of high inflation. Um, so yeah, well, maybe we can maybe it's a, this is a good segue rather than go back to me. So stay with you um, to talk about Endeavor Group, which spun out of uh, well, spun out of Woolies. Yeah. Um, you're still playing in the same space, obviously. So, what did just to fill anyone in that doesn't follow this space too closely? What did Endeavor get out of Woolies? Uh, pubs, Pokies, and Dan Murphy's, and a couple of the related brands. But essentially, all of the sin areas, pretty much. Well, yeah, they, they talk about it in the ESG discount that they kept Woolworth share price down, and Endeavor not being fully valued. You probably talked about yeah. the conglomerate discount, where yeah. uh, you know the share price in Endeavor went up significantly after the spin out. It did fall on this report, but um, yeah, ESGs are environmental social governance. A lot of investors, if big funds wouldn't wouldn't didn't like Woolworths and were asking them to make change. I think, mm. um, and they spun it out. And it's quite interesting. There was an article in the Fin that was talking about how much uh, revenue actually comes from gaming, which isn't broken out specifically because obviously poker machines are a pretty for a lot of people. That's something that they just won't invest in. Um, so they said less than 50% of revenue came from hotels and gaming, but more than 50% of EBIT came from hotels and gaming or from gaming specifically. Yeah. Tells you, I think there was something in here. You know, most companies, you'd be happy with a 35 40% profit margin. Gambling is 85% profit margin. So that's why all the EBIT's coming from that part of their business. Hmm. Um, I mean, it was generally... Fair, so, yeah. So they don't break it out as in like they don't... How much is from gambling? They'll say how much is from their hotels, but hotels also sell food uh, and drinks and, and other things. So, isn't that's? Um, I mean, what, okay, I don't know much about the business. I should know a bit more before we came on the show. But does it really like? Does it really matter? Because the reason I say this is it for competitive reasons. I don't disclose it for because for ESG reasons, you kind of know what you're getting, right? I think so. Like you know that. It does pokies. Like Some people might have a revenue, like a materiality of revenue that they won't they won't invest in gambling over ten percent or something like that. So maybe uh, of revenue or a profit. So it, uh, maybe it's very difficult to measure because you have to, there's something like three hundred pubs. So you then have to get financials and break out for three hundred pubs. Maybe that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just it's just interesting, isn't it? Because. I would have thought that, that like they would have had that even when they did the split, you know? Yeah. People would know where that revenue comes from. So I'm just looking in sales. So I'm looking at this is the 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 annual twenty twenty two. A sale of goods in store, eight point nine billion, of a total eleven point six billion. Sale of goods online, one billion. 
Hotel-related goods and services, $1.5 billion. And this is in the, uh, like the segment disclosures and whatever. Um, it's, it's interesting because in-store sales and online um, control of goods, it doesn't really say exactly where it's coming from. Yeah. It just says, and then it's got the segment report. It's just got retail. Yeah. That says $10 billion of revenue. Well, that's Dan's. So that'd be Dan Murphy's. Hotels, $1.5 billion? That's hotel. Yeah, hotels is where your pokies come from. Yeah, right. So that's where all the earnings are, not necessarily all the revenue. Yeah, right. Okay. Interesting. I think it's a uh, interesting. Okay. If you don't endeavor, please let us know what, what was said. Um, <laughs> the trends were pretty positive. Like they were talking about, you know, pubs are full, bands are running, everything's being sold out. Uh, they had the management was talking about how. Uh, People won't go into the office, but they'll fill up a pub and say hi to their boss yeah. <laughs> at the pub, uh, but they're unwilling. They don't think it's safe to be in the office. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, and you walk around, it's in the suburbs getting back to normal pretty quickly. Um, something like, was it retail sales were up 12%, hotels up 13% in the first seven weeks of the new financial year. So, uh, in reasonable reasonable shape, it probably got a little bit ahead of itself because of the share price did, not the company, uh, after the spin out. Um, and it's just a matter of, where do you stand on gambling, I guess, yeah. um, as an investor? Yeah. We all shop at Dan, so. Yeah, right. I'm going to read this, um, the transcript. I can see there were a few mentions of gaming in there. So, yeah, yeah right. Okay. So, that's that's interesting. Um, Endeavor's it's held widely now because of the split from Woolies. So, um, really interesting. Thanks for bringing that to the table, mate. So, I'll, I'll maybe cap off with, maybe I'll cap off with two. Um, simple one being ProMedicus. Uh, Prometica's revenue up 38% to 93 million, profit up 44% to 44 million, dividends 22 cents per share of the full year up 47%. So Prometica's, um, people will know that I own shares in this company, full disclosure. Uh, Prometica's is uh, probably the highest quality company in the ASX. Um, super strong top line growth because more exams, they get make money transaction revenue. So they have minimums guaranteed into their contracts with hospitals. So for those of you that don't know, ProMedicus owns the brand called Visage Imaging, which in the United States offers um, technology and software to hospitals and radiology clinics that allow them to stream images. So if you get a mammogram or insert any type of medical image, the ProMedicus software can stream that image instantly uh, to a computer, to an iPad, to an, uh, an iPhone. And not only that, you can send and receive, you can store it in a vendor-neutral archive. Uh, and they're, they're starting to roll out all these products on top of that. Their technology is probably a year, two years ahead of the competition. Um, it assigns some of the biggest hospitals in the world, most well-known brands like Mayo Clinic, for example. And in Australia, they uh, continue to development for their thing called Radiology Information Services, uh, which is commonly called RIS, R-A-S. And that is a workflow management for radiology clinics so software that does everything from you know booking uh, clients into um, scheduling rooms and whatever you want to do with it basically so uh, Prometicus's results are basically dependent on the contracts that it wins how quickly it can implement and then the usage of the technology and so for the next five years assuming renewals Prometicus has banked in 420 million dollars of revenue that's from the committed revenue over the next five years, plus growth. In the in the year to June 30th, in the US alone, transactional revenue was up 
So this is a business that has a bank of revenue already booked for the future, assuming their high quality clients pay the bill. And they're re-signing clients for longer terms at higher rates, uh, which is really, really telling. And they're also winning new sites. There's another one I thought I wish I bought when someone bought it to me in the yeah. first place. Yeah. It's, um, well, people don't know this about Prometicus. Yes, it's the best performing stock on the ASX over the past 10 years. But before Sam, who's the co-founder, went back, who's appeared on this podcast too, before he went back, the company was, wasn't was doing too well. He and Anthony, uh, Anthony is uh, the, like he was the original programmer of the software. They actually bought Visage. So the technology, they didn't develop that themselves. They actually bought that. Um, so a, a group in Germany, uh, Malt Westerhoff, uh, still the CTO, I believe, um, he and his team designed that and... Prometicus bought it. I think they bought the combined business for $15 million during the GFC. They sold part of it for 5 or 10 which left them the bit they wanted, which is now Visage, which is probably worth a few billion. Yeah. So- um, Patience. Patience, yes. capital allocation, <laughs> you know, sticking with it. Um, Prometicus has done a good job. What's it worth? Probably not what today's share price is if you do a discounted cash flow analysis. I find it pretty hard to get to. Um, but if it can continue to grow in other modalities- uh, it's rolling out new products, entering new verticals. It's got the AI Accelerator Lab. Uh, so there's a lot to like about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. I still own shares from many years ago, but um, would be happy with a very small portion of a portfolio in it. It's just high, high risk. I think it's just a reminder of the long game, isn't it? That oh, yeah. if, it, if it's a good, you find good companies and why trade out of them and don't always sell you, you know, buy the ones that have fallen, sometimes buy the ones that, uh, that are rising and doing something that good. That are winning, yeah. yeah. Um, so my final company then, seeing that that was uh, Prometicus, uh, maybe I'll just uh, talk about one I haven't talking, spoken about this week, which is Laserbond, small cap company, LBL is the ticket code. Uh, just surface engineering. So if you have a big piece of machinery equipment, you can go to a Laserbond site uh, and they'll repair that piece of equipment to original standard or better, up to 10 times, 20 times better in terms of wear and tear. Uh, so it's good for the environment because you reuse parts and um, it's good for them because uh, they can use their expertise um, in surface engineering and increasingly in cladding. Uh, the business overall, very strong result issued this morning being August 25th, revenue up 24%, EBITDA up 36%, net profit up 28%. Cash in the bank up 16%. And I think that was despite some delays in some um, components and delivering for some customers. They, um, Wayne Hooper is the family uh, executive director and CEO of the business major shareholder and an engineer himself. Um, he was saying uh, in prepared remarks that uh, basically it's, they had bottlenecks. They couldn't fulfill enough customer orders. So they've gone out and hired um, new people. So they've gone out and hired, I think it was off the top of my head, 17 new um, folks. This is a small cap business, by the way. So we're talking small numbers. We're not talking thousands of employees. Uh, sorry, 15 new employees who are scheduled to commence. Um, so this basically what these employees do is it allows them to do more engineering, more throughput at the Victorian or the Queensland sites um, more recently. Um, their core manufacturing base is in Sydney. They're looking to expand into WA in a big way to get closer to mining clients and so on and so forth. And um, for the most part, this is a business that I think over the last few years has compounded EBITDA at something like, I don't know, double, strong double digits. So 
Small cap companies- 40%. 40%, there you go. They have a pretty ambitious target to reach before 2025. Um, I'll just try and get it up. They want to reach $60 million of revenue by 2025. Um, and that compares to 31 million now. So- How did you find it? I always have to ask you that Laser question. bond? Yeah. I think originally it might've been through friend of the show, Luke Winchester, or friend of the show, Andrew Page. Uh, maybe even before that. But if you screen for small cap companies that pay a dividend- There's not many. And profitable, <laughs> that's not in mining. Yeah. You're not going to get a lot of names. So this is one that's on there. And actually, that reminds me, I saw them. So I went to a mining conference here in Melbourne. I can't remember. It's the big one. I can't remember who it was. I was going there to look at um, a company called RPM Global. And when I was there, there was about four or five companies that were listed on the ASX, which I recognized. And I saw Laserbond there and they had a store and they were showing, showcasing their technology. And so that's what initially was like, everyone talks about that thing. It sounds weird, Laserbond. Sounds like, <laughs> I don't even know what that sounds like. <laughs> so I went and looked at it and that's when I was like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. It's not as complicated as I thought. Um, and so they've got a, for a small cap company, they got an internal R&D function. They partner with the universities. They're licensing their technology. Now two of their three big, um, partners for the technology division, they haven't yet um, build the revenue for, I believe. So um, I'm, you know, with a founder at the helm and a family that's very well incentivized. I think you can expect more dividends and you can expect growth over the over time. There's, it's just maybe a bit of cyclicality. It's always risks in small cap businesses. So keep that in mind. Don't go in and go, I'm going to start with a 10% position of my portfolio. It's nothing crazy like that. It's just a small cap company. So um, I just like it and I, I'm hoping I can get to Sydney in the next few months and, and go on tour the facility. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's Laserbond. Uh, so just to recap, the companies that we've covered, we've got Laserbond, ProMedicus, Treasury Wines, uh, EML Payments and Altium in reverse order from me. From you, we had Endeavor, Coles, Hub, Kogan and Borrell. All the interesting ones. Oh, so much fun. <laughs> um, well, Kogan's a bit of an interesting one. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, still got the founding... Um, management team uh, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast at the moment but maybe in time they can straighten out the ship well, boring is good in markets too so yeah yeah true it is Borrell we talk about you know name says it all <laughs> but um, it uh, has paid dividends con consistently over the years uh, Endeavour you said like more people return into hotels and still going to dance still going to dance everyone needs to go to dance um <laughs> Laser bond, pretty good result. Um, I got a text message from my dad before saying, "What? What's a buy on the market at the moment?" So I'll keep that one private. But um, yeah, it's. I think you know, for the most part, as I've gone through this reporting season for the first time in a few years, I think I feel like it's a buyer's market. In yeah. that, there's a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty amongst investors, and things are getting sold off. There's a lot of pessimism, there's which seems overdone. Yeah. And like even before at the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey, it was at the highest amount of pessimism in markets. Yeah, right. And that is always when markets rally, essentially. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like like if you've got your wits about you, we're not saying go and buy everything, but if you've got your wits about you, now it will be more fruitful. You know, whereas if you're going and researching companies and you might look at 10 companies over a month or two, you might get one. Yeah. But now you might get three. You know, that's probably the difference. So, well, someone pulled out a stat that in 2020, uh, I think I must have been on another podcast, there were 
98 percent. Another podcast. It's the one we always talk about. Ninety eight. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was ninety eight percent of companies in the S and P five hundred went up in twenty twenty, and that's when all the new investors joined the market. So similar oh. to when. Um, uh, you know, there's a flood of retail investors in Australia. If 98% of the people, 98% of stocks go up, didn't matter what you bought. Mm. But now where it's more variable, it's much more of a buyer's market compared to that, which was in hindsight a seller's market. I think when you get, that's that's a f- uh, fascinating set. I feel like when you get into markets like this where it's choppy, the thing is you've got to go back to basics. Yeah. Just look at the companies that are growing and are going to keep growing yeah. and paying dividends and doing all these things. And management team's got a sensible head. The ones that are freaking out, the ones that aren't making the hard calls, just avoid them. You don't need to worry about them. See how they go and come back another time. Exactly. Good list of companies here, Drew. People can get in contact with you by heading to waddlepartners.com.au, correct? Yep. Not on Twitter. Not on Twitter. Do you monitor LinkedIn at all? Yep. Yeah. All right. Too much. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, so LinkedIn, there you go. You can find Drew on LinkedIn. I, not so much. I get some <laughs> messages through LinkedIn. I'm like month late do I reply <laughs> um, but yeah if you want to get in contact with me there's plenty of contact forms on the Rask website so otherwise you can find me on Twitter uh, there are a few imposter accounts don't worry about those guys um, the real deal um, <laughs> that at Owen Rask is the, it'll be in the not, show notes not Rask not Rask there's a yeah oh, we can't get rid of him I we reported can't. it we I actually did. followed it and then reported it <laughs> if, if someone that looks like me is sending you a message about trading strategies or cryptocurrencies it is not me I no, <laughs> it's not definitely not me. Oh, uh, thank you, Instagram, for that. Um, so, Drew Meredith, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.